Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Soberlink. The Soberlink system is designed to make parenting time safer with real-time remote alcohol monitoring. Soberlink uniquely combines a breathalyzer with wireless connectivity and is the only system that includes facial recognition, tamper detection, and advanced reporting. Parents can submit a test anytime, anywhere, and have test results delivered automatically to the concerned parties. Simplify co-parenting arrangements by using the system that provides transparency and proof of sobriety throughout the day. Join the thousands of parents who are already benefiting from Soberlink by visiting www.soberlink.com backslash family law. For a limited time, get an exclusive $50 off your device by emailing info at soberlink.com and mentioning Divorce and Beyond. Coming up on today's episode of the Divorce and Beyond podcast. There have been a few, you know, sort of, I say, like, tire kickers in a sense. I'm not sure. I'm thinking about it. It's the new year. And literally, that's how the calls have started today. I've had a few calls where I don't know if I'll be calling you tomorrow or in six months from now or not at all, but... Can I get a little more background information? I want to start the year off with some of this in my head. And I've had a couple of people come in and say, we made it to the holidays, barely, and it's time to go. Give me the form to fill out. What do I have to do? Hello, and welcome to the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host. As a top divorce attorney and family law mediator for 30 years, I know what you need to know to get through your divorce, and most importantly, how to move beyond it to thrive and transition to your new future. My experts and I are here to give you the insider view into the process, so listen in for the wisdom and expert information you need on your journey through divorce and beyond. Hello, and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host, and today I am joined by one of my friends and colleagues from Connecticut. So all of you who listen know that I practiced for the first 20 plus, like 26 years in Fairfield County in Connecticut. And Eric Broder, my guest today, is, I would say, probably one of the, if not the leading family law attorney in Fairfield County. He is uh, one of the partners, founding partners. Um, Now, the name just recently changed. So I'm going to make sure I get it right. Broder, Orland, Murray, and Damati, LLC. They were Broder and Orland for as long as I was there. Um, but thankfully, Sarah Murray and um, Chris Damati, who are also fantastic family law attorneys, along with Carol Orland, who is um, one the other founding partner. Um, and the, really, uh, the, the firm is probably one of the premier um, leading matrimonial boutique firms in the area. I know that when I moved from Connecticut and since then, when I have needed to refer cases, Eric is where I go. Eric is my lead referral. I send everybody to Eric uh, because I trust him because he's a fantastic attorney. And this is what I, you don't know this, Eric, but what I also tell them is he's a great person. So I'm thrilled to have Eric here today. Um, Thanks so much much for joining me. No, thank you for having me. That means a great deal, really, from you especially. Thank you. Well, I, I always enjoyed working with you. We didn't actually get to have that many cases uh-huh. together. Um, we were actually starting to get a few more just before yeah. I moved, but um, you, you really are 
one of the things that has always stood out for me um, in your practice is we we come from a fairly litigious area. Um, Fairfield County uh, has a lot of high net worth individuals. There's something about that much money that that seems to drive litigation, and yet. You have always, in every experience I've ever had with you, you are an extremely capable practitioner. If you are in a courtroom, I would never worry about you being able to handle yourself, but you do not drive things to the courtroom. And that was something that I always appreciated about you. You wanted to achieve something that worked for your clients and you were willing to try mediation, negotiation, and whatever it would work. So that's one of the things that I always you know, found to be so admirable about your practice. And I know you've continued that since I've Thank you. We try. It's easier to try a case sometimes than it is to settle it, but it's much better for everyone if the case is settled. That is so true. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say it quite that way, but you're right. Sometimes it's just easier to go into that courtroom and fight it out. But that's, and and so we're sitting here, we're taping this on January 4th. And for those of you who are out there listening, this is the first Monday of a new year. And for those of us who are in the divorce world, this is what we call divorce day or, you know, the the divorce day. Um, And January in general is divorce month. So Eric and I were talking and we really think one of the things that might be most helpful to people right now Uh, Because as it is divorce month, people are thinking about it. There's something about that confluence of the holiday stress, the beginning of a new year and all that, that makes people whose relationships are a little shaky think about divorce and they're all reaching out to attorneys. So we thought we'd cover the top five questions that we hear from people when they call us in January. So, and I know Eric, Eric has heard all of these a million times. I've heard all of these a million times, but I know you, my listeners, have not heard these so many times. So we're going to cover the top things. We're going to end. We're going to start not with the top one. We're going to end with the number one question that we always get. But, you know, Eric, let's talk about from the start, because this is also a a pretty, you know, common question. What would, you know, people come in and they're like, my spouse cheated, they're hiding money, they're an alcoholic. We hear a lot from people in that initial meeting about why that marriage isn't working. So what what effect or does the cause of the breakdown have? What do you tell people? I mean, first, you know, we're talking to many people in many different states. So state by state, it's different. And I like to compare New York, which is literally right over the border from us here, and Connecticut. Both states, like every state, has what we call no-fault divorce. That just means you don't need a reason to get divorced. It used to be you had to prove that someone was abusive or someone had an affair. You had to prove a reason. That doesn't exist anymore. Um, and some people think, well, it's no fault. So everything's divided 50-50 and there's a formula for alimony and child support. But in reality, that's not true in certain states, particularly Connecticut, my own state, where the cause of the breakdown of the, of the marriage can come into play. So things like affairs, things like drug issues, alcohol issues, physical abuse or police involvement, God forbid, or emotional abuse are things judges have the right to consider. But I tell people not to get too excited. At the end of the day, a judge is deciding your case, not a jury of 12 people from your town who would be appalled to hear that someone had a relationship with somebody. Um, A judge has heard it all before, many, many times, and they don't put a lot of weight into it. 
And even if you can prove the worst of the worst that someone was having a three-year affair or, or they were drinking, maybe the assets are divided 60-40. That would be, frankly, a home run result for a lawyer. Um, but at the end of the day, 50-50 of what you have today is probably going to be equivalent to 60% of what you'll have after a long, drawn-out battle in which you go in front of a judge and discuss the cause of the breakdown. So as hurtful as it may be, it's something that I try to explain to people may not have as big a result as you hope for. The only place it will have somewhat of a result is if someone dissipates money or spends it on a boyfriend or girlfriend. Uh, you know, you go and buy a $10,000 watch for somebody or $10,000 earrings, that's going to be charged against you. That's certainly something that, um, that I think people need to have an understanding of, and I try to dispel right up front. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things. I think people come through the door thinking, well, it's a courtroom. I'm going to get justice in a courtroom. I'm going to be compensated for the the wrongs that my spouse has done. And it's disheartening or upsetting for some people to hear that that's not really how the system is set up, as you just described. You know, it's really set up, um, you know, from that perspective of, distributing your assets, d dividing things up, and, and letting you, I always say, fly and be free, move forward with your lives. There's one other point on that that I agree, fly and be free. I completely agree. The sooner this process is over, the better for everybody, particularly children. The one thing people tend to do, though, is they want to sort of bite the hand that feeds. So if, if I'm making this up, if a, if a husband is having an affair, maybe it's with someone at the office. We hear that sometimes. The wife now wants to blow that affair up and, and tell on the husband at work. Well, now he loses his job. There goes the money he was going to make to pay you alimony and child support with. So that's not a good thing to do. And if you go to trial, it's public. Now, it doesn't mean there are TV cameras. I mean, unless you're someone super, super famous. It doesn't mean you're going to be in the newspaper or online. But at the end of the day, a judge will write a decision. The judge will say, the wife claims the husband had numerous affairs. Husband claimed the wife had a drinking issue. That's now, you can get it online. Your kids are going to see it. Your, your friends are going to see it. Your family members, your prospective employers, people you work with. So now, even if it's not true, it's still out there. And that's really a dangerous thing. So as much as people want to blame, and rightly so, they should for, for cause issues, they're not given as much stock as we like to think they would get. Yeah, no, and we both know. First off, I do want to say Eric's represented people in cases where there were um, those cameras in the uh, yeah. in the courtroom. He's he's represented. He can't say who they are, but um, he's he's represented several people who have some very high uh, visibility cases with some issues. But what we end up finding, unless what's gone on ha really shocks the judicial conscience, as as we say in the legal world, right, is something. That's, you know, I always call it, I always liken it to the Tiger Woods phenomena. If he's, if, if somebody's been out with that kind of behavior, that might rise to a level where a judge might pay attention to it. But yes. you're, you're so right, Eric, because, you know, remember people, those judges are sitting there day in and day out hearing about the crazy things people are going to do when they, their marriage breaks down and they do a lot of crazy things. Yep. Yep. They really do. Sometimes the judge will tell you for every person having an affair, there's another, there's a reason why. And, and maybe to some people it's not justified, but people haven't been intimate in years, sleeping in separate bedrooms for years. So 
a judge might say, well, so he had a relationship or she had a relationship. They weren't getting their physical needs met for, for five, 10 years. So they don't put a lot of stock in. And that's a common occurrence. Yeah. I've often heard judges say something along the lines of, it's not the cause of the breakdown. It's a symptom of a broken marriage or a relationship that has failed. So the other thing, and you mentioned this a moment ago, um, for families getting through the process, not dragging it out, not making it um, acrimonious, can be very helpful to the kids. And I know custody and and a parenting plan, that's also something for families where there are children, minor children involved, that's almost always a question that we hear is, you know, how is custody decided? How do we work out a parenting plan? So first, everyone gets confused with what really custody is. There's decision-making custody, and then there's parenting time per se. I can tell you 99 plus percent of people in Connecticut in the nastiest cases with even abuse involved have joint legal custody of their children. That just means major decisions. Health, education, and religious decisions are made jointly. And most people agree. If the pediatrician says you need to see a specialist or your child needs you know, dental work or braces, you're not going to disagree. And if it's education and a child needs extra help or aid, not a problem. Or if the child's been in private school for seven years, you're probably going to continue in that pattern. So rarely do those disputes even come up. Parenting time, though, is something that is often a battle. There are the day counters and the hour counters, which we despise, whether you represent them or not, you don't want to hear that. Um, and I can say that there's sort of a little bit of a trend now. When, when I was growing up, you know, parents or fathers generally had their children Friday night to Sunday afternoon, and they went to McDonald's on Tuesday nights. That was sort of the old, you know, the joke. And that's what it was. Now, Many, many more plans are 50-50 parenting plans. And with COVID, ironically, that's probably increased or trend, trended that way. People aren't commuting to work anymore. So in our area where people work in Manhattan and take an, an hour train ride every day, each way, it's difficult to be home on a Tuesday at 6 o'clock or to be home in the morning to get kids on the school bus. That's changed now. So more and more parents who are working from home are able to have more and more time with their children. Now, it's not a definitive trend and it's not automatic, but I can say that that is something that's happening. And I always tell people in a nice way, the less I know about their children, the better, right? That means they're working things out on their own. When I know what a kid's after school schedule better than I know my own kid's after school schedules, I know, I know they're in trouble and I know they've spent way too much on legal fees already. So a lot of times we'll try to steer those people to a parenting coordinator or you know, an experienced social worker or therapist that can work with the parties together. Number one, they're less expensive and more qualified than any divorce lawyer out there. Number two, when the case is over and something pops up a year from now or a year and a half from now, they're much more available and they're better to speak to. They're the ones that can deal with it. They know how a 12-year-old is different from a 15-year-old from a 7-year-old. So they can adapt to those changes better. We're qualified to handle many of these issues, but trying to bring a third party in, I think, certainly helps out. Yeah, and and bringing in someone with some, you know, expertise in the area of parenting, as you just pointed out, can can really be a game changer. You know, it's not we, we went to law school. It's not that we we learned how to use the law and how to apply the law and how to present evidence in a courtroom. And certainly, if you are in the family law field as we are, we also pick up psychology. We pick up um, a great deal of you know financial information, and we become a at dealing with 
the issues of the divorce, but when you truly are having issues around parenting and your children, a parenting expert is invaluable. And there's so many good ones. Christina McGee um, has been on the podcast several times. Um, One of my favorite episodes and one of her most popular is parenting plans aren't for parents. Um, They're really, you know, it's about your kids. So, and I think that's important. I love, I, I really find it interesting what you just pointed out about COVID because, you know, we're still, as we sit here in January, January of 2021, we're still in it, hopefully with a window to coming out. But I think the the world in which we live in for work and school and so many different things will now be aided by technology so much more than it was a year ago from now. Um, And so I wonder how that will play into ongoing parenting um, plans as we go forward in the future. I suspect, as you say, it's going to continue to have an impact. Yeah, I think so. And I definitely think, yeah, the the whole work, we always say the closer you work to home, the more available you should be or could be for your children. And now with people literally working at home, or big companies with New York City presence or, or Chicago presence or Atlanta, people aren't going to be going back to these buildings as much, and they're finding other ways that their employees can work from remote locations. It's going to allow them more time, which I think is a win for the kids. I mean, at the end of the day, if a child could have half the time with mom and half the time with dad, that's that's a home run. So to me, it's going to have a benefit. And But I do think prior to COVID, there was a trend to – both parents having more of an equal schedule. I, I started to feel it more now in the last four or five years, for sure. Um, and I think it's also a function of parents stepping to the plate. I think de facto 25 years ago, it wasn't in anyone's head. They can be more than in every other weekend, mom or dad, or dad usually, stereotype. Yeah. And now it's, it's really prevalent out there. So it's good to see. Yeah, well, and the other thing you and I were talking just a moment ago, by having that equal or shared parenting time on a much more equal basis, it gives the parents an equal opportunity to to go out and further their careers and have more time available to themselves. So I, I think that there's a lot of benefit to it for the entire family unit. Um, so when we look at, you know, what people want to know when they come through that door or they, you, you mentioned earlier, you've already today on January 4th, you've gotten a number of phone calls, um, already. Yeah. There's been a few, you know, sort of, I say like higher kickers in a sense. I'm not sure I'm thinking about it. It's the new year. And literally that's how the calls have started today. I've had a few calls where I don't know if I'll be calling you tomorrow or in six months from now or not at all, but and I get a little more background information. I want to start the year off with some of this in my head. And I've had a couple of people come in and say, we made it through the holidays, barely, and it's time to go. Give me the form to fill out. What do I have to do? So it is, you know, we, we do joke, you know, January is usually a busier month. Gyms and divorce lawyers is the, the bad joke. <laughs> we don't have too much material to work with in the divorce land, so we'll go with that. Um, and sometimes, believe it or not, after the school year ends, that's another time where people say, my kids are off to camp, the summer's starting final exams are over, whatever it is. Those are sort of the two bigger times that we tend to uh, tend to see. But yeah, yeah. that time Well, year. we see those peaks. Well, I know I, I was just talking to an, another colleague and they said, oh, you know, I've never really noticed that bump in January. And I thought back, I've always noticed the bump in January. Um, so, and, and the other thing, you know, people start thinking about as they come into the new year, um, finances become a big issue for people. They're starting a new work year. Bonuses might be coming in in the next couple of months. And so another question that we all 
always here in that that first phone call or that first uh, meeting with people is you know who does how how does the division of our assets get split up? How do we decide who's going to get what? They always or you get the person you've seen these people too, right? Who have the spreadsheet and they know exactly how it should all be split up. Yes. They've already decided. They tell us how they're going to divide. Yes, yes. They forget there's another side to negotiate. I was just going to say, or they tell their, they make the mistake of telling their spouse, I've already yes. decided how everything's yes. going to be divided to make your job even harder. That's right. <laughs> and what's unique, I say this as a divorce lawyer, what's unique about making a deal in dividing assets or alimony as well is you, if, if I want to buy a car, if I want to buy a Toyota tomorrow and I go to the Toyota dealership and I don't like my local Toyota dealership, I can go to the other one down the street or the one next door, or I can go buy a, a, a BMW or a Mercedes or a Mazda. I can, there's so many options for me to buy and people to deal with. You have to divorce and make a deal with that one person. You have no choice. So you come in with that asset spreadsheet. You can't go shop it down the street to the next dealership. You have to make a deal with that person, which makes it really unique and makes the laws of each state, I think, really important. So I can't definitively tell you how a case would end. Well, I can certainly tell you in Connecticut and most likely New York, but different states have different rules as to how assets are divided, how inheritances are handled, how um, separate property, stuff that people bring to the marriage are handled. But they all look at a few different factors. Contribution to the assets. Doesn't mean if you made all the money as the employee and you were a stay-at-home spouse that you don't have as much right to that money because you worked and maintained the home or had a home life or maybe were the primary child provider, child care provider in that relationship. So generally, I always start from assets are 50-50, especially in a longer marriage. Why wouldn't they be? And then I listen to factors. Did an inheritance come in recently, for example? That's important in Connecticut, the timing of an inheritance. Did someone bring something to the marriage that's kept separate? Very rarely do people bring things and leave them totally separate, especially in a long marriage. And how can you prove that? Can you get documents from 30 years ago? Probably not. So there's no hard, fast rules state by state. But I can say that a lot of judges have told me they start with the premise of we're dividing these things equally. Why shouldn't we divide them? And you almost have to disprove that theory. Yeah, it's almost like a presumption that 50-50 is the way it's got to go. And I can say, having been in Connecticut where it's equitable distribution, meaning what's fair in that case, which is generally what you're just saying. A judge would say, why wouldn't it be 50-50? Then I moved across the country and went to California, which is community property, which is 50-50, which I thought was going to be easier than figuring out what was fair. And I can tell you, it is infinitely harder because then the question is always, is it community or is it separate? And they have come up with a million different rules about how you can make something community or separate or both. So it does depend on where you are. But generally, um, the question I get from people all the time, it's actually on my YouTube channel. It's like the number one um, video is, well, the house is only in my name. Doesn't that mean I get to keep it? Hello everyone, it's Susan and I have an exciting announcement. In just a few weeks, I'm launching the Divorce and Beyond Members Only Community. 
The Members Only Community is going to be your place to take your divorce and beyond experience to the next level. I have a lot of benefits that are going to come along with your membership, but just to highlight a few, you're going to have access to the entire archive of episodes, and that is all the ones that are out there already, as well as all of those to come, and they will be ad-free and uninterrupted. And in addition, you're going to have special members-only podcast episodes only available to members that explore and take a deeper dive into the legal issues of divorce. I've already recorded some issues on alimony, adultery, and sole custody, to name a few. Members will also be able to ask Susan anything in a special forum where you can not only ask your questions, but you can learn from those that have been asked by other members. Those are just a few of the benefits. So membership is going to be available for a low price of only $10 a month. But in order to make it special for those of you who are listening right now, I'm going to have an opportunity for you to join at only $5 a month if you sign up for early access now. So go to the link in the show notes to sign up for that early access or visit divorceandbeyondpod.com. I can't wait to see you all in the Divorce and Beyond members only community. Stay tuned for more from Susan and her guest, leading divorce attorney, Eric Broder, answering your top FAQs about divorce. My opening line and every closing argument literally is it's all about credibility, Judge. And assuming I've been able to discredit the other party, even over minor things, I literally have almost a bad. If you looked at the transcripts of my closing arguments, the first three sentences will use the word credibility every time because that's what I want a judge to know, where they weren't credible on a small item and how it should be taken into account for the entire case. If you are enjoying this episode, check out Out With The Old and In With The Bold. Starting the new year off right with Jessica Fru. No, you're not alone, even if it's not the exact same experience or whatever. But like you're saying, those feelings are the same. And to realize that you can come out of that for the better, like you can make your life what you want it to be. And that's that's where the bold action comes in for us is is understanding that, okay, I can take this experience and create what I want to out of it now. And now we return to today's show. Very good point. Title, I always tell people, every call, title is irrelevant, especially in Connecticut. The house is in your name, it doesn't matter. Your pension that you've earned as a teacher for 25 years is a marital asset, and it's going to be treated the same way that the bank account or brokerage account that you have is treated. It doesn't matter who, what, who's titled to that asset. And I get that question all the time. And people, either the response is, I can't believe it, it shouldn't be that way, or thank God it's that way because there's nothing in my name, right? That right. too. Liabilities, marital liabilities certainly go that way. Reasonable, ordinary credit card debt, if one party carries it, that's going to be treated just as, just as well or just the same way as a bank account. Yeah. I always tell people it's the good, the assets, and the bad, the debt. Um, But then, you know, I got a person who wrote in the other day um, a question. I'm always asking listeners, send in your questions. We'll Mm -hmm. we'll do an episode on it. And someone said, well, my friend's getting divorced. And so I told him to just take everything and give it to his mom, take all the money out of the bank accounts and stuff and give it to his mom until the divorce is over. Um, And I know you've probably heard that one. What do you tell people with that one? Yeah, I mean, the first, the basic forms are we're going to get the last three years plus of bank statements and credit card statements. 
And we're going to quickly look. And when we see an account go from 100000 to 10000 over three months, there better be a logical, reasonable explanation. And if the money's gone or gifted away, that's going to count almost as a pre-distribution of assets. So if someone gives away 100000 to their mom or just gets rid of it somehow, their, other, their spouse is going to get the next $100,000. It's going to be as though they pre-spent their money. So, yeah, a lot of people um, come in and, and tell me their tricks, or I'm going to leave the business in my brother's name. I'm not going to take as much of a distribution for my business this year. Well, we're going to look to see what you kept in the cash register at the end of the year because that's a distributable asset. Yeah, and most any average plus divorce lawyer is going to know to do that. And I was going to say, people think they're so sneaky and, you know, the, the, uh, there's almost always a paper trail to money. I mean, it's very difficult, um, to deal with, you know, we've had the clients who get on the private plane down to an Island in the Caribbean with the briefcases, but even those, there's a way to trace that stuff, folks. There definitely is. The only one not to trace sometimes is the person that goes to the bank and takes $300 out of the ATM and sticks $50 in their, uh, you know, in their sock drawer and builds it up to a couple hundred dollars or a couple thousand dollars. That's about the only place the divorce lawyer is not going to be able to look. And right. if that's doing and they get caught, it is not worth the penalty of getting caught to take a little bit of extra cash. Trust me, I've seen judges come down really hard on people for trying to get cute. And it's usually over a little bit of money. Right. And it it truly is not worth, because the minute you get caught doing that, everything else is suspect that you've done. Once you lie to a judge or to the court, I always tell people you've entirely lost any credibility and what you got will Mm -hmm. never equal what you've lost in that situation. You know, my, my opening line and every closing argument literally is it's all about credibility, judge. And assuming I've been able to discredit the other party, even over minor things, I literally have almost a bad. If you looked at the transcripts of my closing arguments, the first three sentences will use the word credibility every time because that's what I want a judge to know, where they weren't credible on a small item and how it should be taken into account for the entire case. Yep. Well, and it says a lot. I mean, people under the pressure, the emotional pressure of a divorce, that's when they will do those yep. stupid things. And unfortunately, you know, we, we tell clients often in this initial meeting, realize that if you're going through a divorce, everything you do from now on until that divorce is final and maybe beyond is mm-hmm. under a microscope. Yep. Absolutely. And, and, and it, it kind of goes to that, don't put it on paper if you don't, or don't put it in an email if you don't want to yeah. see it in a courtroom down yeah. the road. Yeah. Um, so one of the other, the, the big word, my listeners know I always called it the scariest word in divorce, alimony. Um, that is the other question that I constantly hear from people that as soon as they start thinking about divorce, so it's either how much am I going to have to pay or how much can I get? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, it, it's it's pretty complicated. So it's, it can be hard in that initial conversation to talk to people about this. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, I'll say a lot of people around here, tend to live off of, careful people live off what they make and maybe save a little bit. But you have to realize once you're getting divorced, you now have to maintain two households. Maybe not exactly comparable, but two households. And usually that one source of income, which then gets paid in alimony, is not enough to support those two households. So people get hung up with a number that they have to have, and that's not how it works in the courts. The courts look at a number of factors. They look certainly at the length of the marriage for determining possibly how long alimony will last. They look at your job history, your income history, your employability, the assets you're going to have throughout, you know, from, from the divorce itself. 
So there are a lot of factors that go into it. And a judge doesn't usually say, I counted this one as most important and that one is second most important. They sort of come up with their own theory or their own number. And I often, I had people come to me that were divorced five, six, seven years ago, and hopefully not my clients, but other clients that, that didn't budget properly. They didn't consider that, A, I needed to save because I have an eight-year term of alimony and I'm in trouble after eight years because I have no more income coming in. So they spend all their money every year. They might have no debt, but six years later, they're in trouble. Or my spouse lost his job, for example, and now he has to modify or reduce what he's going to pay me and I can't live. I'm barely making it on what I was getting. Or my spouse got hurt or sick, can't work anymore. So my biggest piece of advice, and maybe I'm stereotyping a little bit, but it's more towards a stay-at-home mom, which is a little more typical in Fairfield County, Connecticut, or Westchester County, New York, than it may be in other areas, is go work. Alimony is rehabilitative in nature. You hear that from judges a lot. It's to give you a chance to get back into the workforce and do something. And I don't mean go out and work full-time 80 hours a week, but try to find a way, number one, so you can financially be supportive when your alimony term is over. You can supplement your income. You can protect against maybe your husband losing, ex-husband then losing his job or becoming ill. And you can probably feel much better about yourself too. If you have a little more purpose, especially as kids get older, I mean, with a six-year-old, it's a lot different than with a 16 or 18-year-old, but get out there and, and do it because there's no set formula in certain states, like our state, Connecticut, as to how much alimony you're going to get and for how long. Some states do have some structures, and I can tell from Massachusetts, one of our neighboring states, from all the recipients of alimony, it's not even close to enough. So that's probably a long-winded way of saying, look out for yourself if you're the recipient of alimony and don't automatically rely on that. It will not be there. It may not always be there. Yeah. I mean, alimony is one of those things. It's kind of the double-edged sword, right? You need it for that rehabilitative aspect of it, which is why courts are ordering it still. But it's no longer, you know, back when I started 30 some odd years ago in, in practice, it was almost, you know, every case was an alimony case because you always had a stay-at-home mom and you always had a breadwinner dad for the most part, again, stereotyping. But that is not the situation anymore. And even when you have a stay-at-home mom, you're not seeing alimony in perpetuity. You are no. seeing alimony for a time frame. Um, but the other side of that conversation that we have to have for people all the time too is we don't see the person who's earning more money come into our office ever with their checkbook out going, when do I get to write that first alimony check? We're always hearing, right? I don't want to pay alimony. I'm not paying alimony. And another hard part of our job is guess what? Yeah. You're going to pay alimony. That's right. That's, that's very true. And, it's, and I, I also think it's important I can speak to 30 years ago where we practiced, there were three, you know, male judges in the courtroom who had stayed home knowing, you know, get to know your judges personally from, you know, enough bar events and being in the community. Yeah. And now you have many more, in fact, in the courthouse near us, one of them, it's, it's all female judges. And they all worked their career as lawyers and raised families and did all these things. And sometimes when you come in there saying, I want a lot of alimony, well, these judges aren't making as much money as they probably were in private practice. There's, you know, government employees. It's not looked as favorably upon. And, and that's something that, you know, if you want to have a very relaxed lifestyle, you might not get as much alimony as you would have percent-wise 25 years ago. It, the trend has changed a little bit that way. And I, I could speak locally, um, and a lot of lawyers in my community will certainly agree with me that it's a different conversation than it was. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And I would say that, you know, pretty much everywhere I've practiced anyway, which mm-hmm. is now on both coasts and uh, just being involved in cases in, in Illinois, um, although not practicing there, uh, <laughs> but I've, I've been mediating and working on some cases there. And I, you know, I'm, I'm also seeing just a general overall trend away from alimony going on any longer than it needs to. Mm-hmm. So having that, yes, it's definitely something that's still in the mix, but it's usually these days for a shorter period of time and for a lesser amount than what we saw so many years ago. And you mentioned the judges. One of our judges when I was in Fairfield County, I remember one of the female judges um, in a courtroom, I, I wasn't. It wasn't my case, but some a, a woman at um, going through her hearing was awarded a certain amount of alimony by the judge, and the lady said, "Well, that's just not enough. I can't live on that. What am I supposed to do?" And the judge looked at her and said, "I get up every morning and go to work. You can too." Yeah. <laughs> that one I've used that. Te- I've told that story to many a client. Yep, yeah, that's true. I will mention one more important thing about alimony. I always tell clients, when you leave my office, um, selfishly, I want you to have a good financial planner or someone who you can work with that you're comfortable with to help you manage what you're going to live off of, sort of save up for that rainy day fund. Um, We've seen a lot of families. I can tell you the post-judgment modification work has built up during COVID because people have just lost their jobs, people in some industries, and they've had to reduce what they pay. You have to learn how to build up a nest egg. And selfishly, I know if three or four years from now, you're doing really well financially, then you might think you got a good divorce deal. But if you mismanage your money, no matter how well you did at the divorce, it's my fault. So I want to make sure my clients have a really good financial planner to work with them on that, work on how they're going to generate income in the future, help them get out in the workforce, get back into their old industry. There's a lot of things and creative things people can do. So that's my selfish side. No, I I agree with you. And, and not to mention, it's just one of the best things you can do for yourself. One of the most empowering things you can do for yourself is get on top of your money situation, yeah. understand it. Um, and I work with many clients through the divorce to get the ones who yeah. have not had the day-to-day handling of the funds to get them to a CDFA or a CFA or or someone to help them. I think it's just, it's like having that parenting expert for the parenting plan. It can be very helpful to have that financial expert. So drum roll, because we're going to get to that number one question that we always hear. And it's so true that we hear this question. And and so when you raised it, I was like, oh yeah, we have to talk about that one. So I'm going to let you reveal the number one question, (laughs) most frequently asked question in that initial consult. All right. I feel like David Letterman, maybe I'm aging myself. So that, um, this is what happens at the end of every consult. There's always that, I have any more, do you have any other questions for me? And there's that sheepish look. And there's the question that comes out, when can I date? Is it okay to date? Half the time, that means someone's already dating, but the other half do need to know. So my answer is tonight, go out, have fun. Definitely take care of yourself. But my big but with that is twofold. Number one, or it's threefold, really. Do not introduce anyone to your children. Not in any capacity. Do not. No matter how old they are, by the way. I don't mean if they're five-year-olds. I mean, if they're 35-year-olds, don't introduce them to the children. Often we kind of joke and call it flavor of the month. People have a spouse, a girlfriend or boyfriend during the process, and then the case ends and that person's long gone. That's number one. Number two, money. Don't, don't spend money or other than a dinner here and there, but 
don't go out and spend a lot of money. If you buy those earrings or that watch, I can tell you it's going to come back to haunt you multiple multiples. And number three, like don't go out to dinner in the same town you live in. Don't be seen. Be really clandestine about it. And the reason is it might not have any impact. In fact, a judge could care less if you went on a date every night after you filed for divorce. It's not going to matter. It's not even admissible, actually, in many in, in our jurisdiction. But what it's going to do is drive your spouse crazy and create jealousy, anger, all sorts of things. And it's going to ramp up the intensity of the case. And we're going to exchange email after email and motion after motion and phone call after phone call talking about your boyfriend or girlfriend. And then someone's going to want to take their deposition. And it becomes so costly and really toxic. So definitely have fun. You should. Um, and it's a great release point for a lot of people. In fact, often my clients will say, I wish my husband or my wife was dating somebody now because the case would go a lot you know, quicker and a lot smoother. But um, just be careful and be really, yeah, just use judgment is really the most important. Yeah, that's, I have always, I had one client who he and his wife would always go to the same restaurant and they had their table. And what does he do the first week? He takes the new person to their restaurant. Well, who, the bartender called her, the waitress called her, their friends at the end of the bar called her and World War III erupted. I mean, it was, it was a disaster. And we didn't go to law school to have these kind of conversations. No. We end up doing that. Believe me. I, you know. Isn't that your favorite? To pick up the phone and go, Eric, yeah. your client was just yeah. seen at Dunville's. Right. With- <laughs> yes. Yes, there are pubs in the area where you can get a turkey club within uh, 15 miles. Can they go there, please? Yes. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, try uh, my, you you say, you know, be don't don't date. I always say be be discreet. You yeah, know, but go it. somewhere where you can. But yeah, dating everyone uh you know, dating before you've decided to file for divorce is only, you know, only going to ramp things up even more, but rarely as we going back to that very first uh, question that we were talking about, does the cause of the breakdown matter? Somebody having a girlfriend or a boyfriend or having an extramarital affair is not likely to have a huge impact on the divorce anyway. So, um, but boy, that emotional content. Well, Eric, I, you know, those are just the top five. There, yeah. there are a number of uh, very good and intelligent questions that people should yeah. be asking attorneys right now if they are thinking about divorce. I always tell them that before they decide to do anything, they really should educate themselves. And a, the great way to do it is to call an attorney like you. If somebody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way? Yeah, feel free. Um, I know sometimes my, I always say my answers may raise more questions. Feel free to email me. Um, my website is ctfamilylaw.com. And under Eric Broder, my name, my email can be easily found there. You can call the office and um, 203-222-4949. I'll take some information. Just tell me, tell them that I, you know, you met me through Susan. And um, I'm glad to make time to talk to people and, and dispel a lot, of, a lot of the myths. I think um, there's so much... I would kind of leave people with this. There's two points. Number one, cocktail talk is my worst enemy and yours too. How many times I'm, someone tells me at a meeting, well, my, my friend gets 35 years of alimony or my buddy's not paying alimony. And I'm like, you know, there's so many other factors that go into maybe he's not, but maybe she had 80% of the assets or the trust that throws off income. Those are all possibilities. So 
Get your answers from a divorce lawyer. Let your friends be supportive for you. They need to be friends. Absolutely. There's no one that knows is going to be better than someone that's known you for 20 years to be a source of support. But make sure you get your legal advice from a divorce lawyer. And I'm glad to answer those questions. And then lastly, like, these are definitely, you know, there's a, it's a bumper sticker, I guess, and I've seen it before. Um, divorce is not a battle to be won, but a problem to be solved. And I really do believe that's true. And if you want to win your divorce case, it's not the result you get the day you sign your agreement or the day you finish your trial. Call me two years after the divorce is over. Let me know how you're doing. Are you working if you aren't working? How are your kids doing? How are the holidays going? How's family? Are you dating? Those things. That's when you know you win your divorce case. So if you keep your eye on that sort of prize way out there, I think you'll be a lot better through. It's never a fun process. Well, there you just made it clear why I send all of my cases to oh. you. <laughs> because that's exactly the winning your your divorce case is everyone go, living beyond it. That's why I call this podcast Divorce and Beyond because divorce is a finite time beyond is, yeah. is where you're going to live your lives. So thank you so much, Eric. I, I know this is going to be helpful to people yeah. and I encourage everyone, if you are in Connecticut, New York, or or have questions, reach out to, to Eric. Um, fantastic firm and obviously, as you can tell, um, fantastic uh -huh. attorney. And thanks. as I said at the very beginning, a lovely human being. So thanks so much, Eric. Fan. I get to say yeah. I knew you win. So that's... <laughs> yeah. You've, you've known me for, for about as long as, as anybody. So I'm so thrilled that I could have you on the show. Thank you so much. It. Thank you, Susan. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me today on the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I hope you found some information and inspiration to help you on this journey. Please join me every Monday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for a new episode. And if you like the show, please take the time to subscribe and leave me a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find more information on the website at divorceandbeyondpod.com where you'll find links to the YouTube channel, transcripts of the episodes, and other bonus content. So I'll see you next week to help you move through your divorce and beyond. Thank you.